0: Play is the engine of learning. That's the mission of Dan Finkel and his team
1: at mathforlove.com. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll dive into Dan's story about how he fell in love with math, and in particular, teaching with games in the math classroom.
0: He'll give us some background behind his extremely popular
1: TED Talk on the five principles of extraordinary math teaching. And he'll give us three things he looks for when selecting games, for use in the math classroom. This is episode 11, Play is the Engine of Learning,
0: an interview with Dan Finkel. Adjust those earbuds and crank up the volume. Let's hit it.
1: Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together with you, the community of educators worldwide, want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Are you ready, John? Let's get Dan on the line right off the bat here. Hey, 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 Dan, how are you doing tonight
0: on this mighty fine evening? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on the show, you guys. Awesome stuff. Uh, we are super excited to have you. We can't wait to dive in here with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. likewise. I am pumped for this. I've been a big fan, so I'm pretty excited. Uh we wanted to jump start for those of the people listening who do not know who you are. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your teaching, you know, what's your story? What's your like math journey if you wouldn't mind filling us in a little bit? I'm really curious myself.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a there's like a long version and a short version, but we got uh,
0: all we got some time. Yeah. So
2: <laughs> so I am someone who, I guess I always was interested in math. And it was probably one of the things that I was kind of naturally good at as a young kid, or just naturally had a predilection for. My mom says that when I was very young, I used to get into the car and like be sitting in a car theater in the backseat or whatever, and be counting, starting from the last place I'd stopped counting the previous time. Like I'd just be like, up and up. So I think there was always just an interest in numbers and logic and patterns that I had in my own life. And that was never, I mean, I think in some ways they didn't exactly know what to do with me in school. They would sort of accelerate me, but then I would run out of stuff to do. Like they'd put me into fifth grade math and third grade, and then I took it again in fourth grade, and then I took it again in fifth grade. And then, you know, there was not really that much of a vision of what to do, but I did well in math and I was always kind of ahead. And, and that was fine. That was just kind of the story. When I was Good at it, but I kind of had a real transformative moment actually at a math camp of all things. So I went to a math camp uh the summer after my ninth grade year. It was the Hampshire College of Summer Studies in Mathematics. And it was the first time that I had this really like a blown-away kind of experience with mathematics in terms of an opening up to oh my God, this subject is so much more than I thought it was. It's so much more interesting. It's so much more challenging. What they showed us about mathematics was so much more gripping and interesting. Like I remember I learned about surreal numbers in games, which are still like something I find so interesting. It's like a whole number system that corresponds to games and game positions. Like it's so fascinating. And just the idea that math could work like that And also that we were asked to think as deeply as we were. It was the first time we were really having to do like true proofs and argument, which was so frustrating at first, but ended up being so satisfying and just beautiful. Even the the exam to get in, they call it the interesting test. And even that, I still remember half of the problems on that because they were so compelling. And I ended up thinking about them for years afterwards. One of the problems was to design a game using a fair coin, a 50-50 coin, that you have a 1 in 3 chance of winning. And I got stuck on it at the time, but I made a lot of really interesting headway. And it turns out there's a kind of a simple trick solution. But I was really lucky not to see that right away, because I ended up getting to the depth of the problem. It took me years to fully unlock the real depth that was there. Yeah, the second one was to design a game that has, you have a 1 out of pi chance of winning, using a fair coin, which is weirder and harder. But um, it hints at sort of what's going on there. Anyway, that was, for me, the moment. I would had good experiences with math before. I'd really always been into puzzles and games and, you know, always fascinated by math challenges. But that was the first time it was kind of sustained. And I suddenly saw what the field is really like. And that was the moment where I came back and I said, oh, why haven't I gotten to see this? Why does nobody see this? That was the pivotal beginning,
0: you know what, Dan, it's so interesting to me because, you know, we were listening to your story and how you had mentioned that you had sort of always had this sort of attraction towards numbers and these things. And obviously you were doing well in school and this camp. You know, we always ask this question next, but again, it seems like anyone we invite on to interview, they tend to hit their most memorable moment from their math experience in life through this little teaching story or journey that you took us on. And I guess my wonder. I'm picturing in my mind. So can you do a little compare and contrast? So you were in school and obviously you were excelling, you were doing well, but it sounds like maybe it might not have been the actual teaching or what was happening in the classroom that was helping you reach that level. It was, you know, likely maybe things you were doing at home with your parents or just that sort of natural curiosity that you sort of had. So do you mind sort of painting us a picture of like, what did that classroom experience look like to you or at? least in your memory now, as you remember it, versus that math camp where you said like you had never experienced math and numbers in such an interesting way.
2: What was happening to me in classrooms, the mathematics I was seeing in classrooms, I think was typical of what a lot of people saw in the sense that it was, they told you what to do and then you did it. They said, here's the answer. Here's how you do a proof in geometry. Here's how you solve an algebraic thing. Like tell, tell, tell. Yeah. And then you do it. I mean, when they told me what to do, it was pretty easier for me to do it. And I think I actually remember feeling in ninth grade, like before I went to the camp, that I didn't actually know if I was good at math. Because people would always come up to me and be like, oh, aren't you good at math? Like I had that reputation. And I remember being like, God, I don't even know. I just feel like I'm really good at following the instructions. But I don't know what i I don't
0: understand do. what I'm doing, but I'm doing it. You <laughs> yeah, know, I, that I, sort of thing, right?
2: Yeah. And I... I mean, I understood well enough, and I could sort of get through, and I could solve problems. Like, I was decent at it, but I just didn't even know, like, what is it even, like, it was confusing to me why other people couldn't do it, because they were telling you exactly what to do every <laughs> time. So, you like, just do what that guy I mean, said. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Like, there's that moment in Forrest Gump where, like, he just does the thing his drill commander tells him, and the drill commander's like, you're a genius, you the thing. And that's how I felt. It's like, well, I don't think I have anything special. Like, if I have something special, this is not showing me whether I do or not. This just seems like anyone should be able to do this. And I think there's a lot of reasons that people fall off that train or don't, because telling doesn't tend to be a very effective way of learning unless you already kind of have your way of taking that in. Right, like you want to know. It needs your understanding and I could do that and some other people could do it as well.
0: I always think back to, you know, my experience. I definitely wasn't fast tracked. I was sort of that I feel like I'm hearing a lot of my experience through what you just mentioned about this, you know, like my teachers always said I was like pretty good at it. They always said I could even be better if I actually put maybe more effort into it. That sort of thing. So I was sort of that kid that I could do it, but I realize now that for me, I was a lucky one that could recognize patterns relatively easily. And I could remember things without necessarily having like a conceptual understanding. Whereas I think that's where a lot of other students sort of fall off the map is that they need to make connections to other things they know, their prior knowledge and so forth. And I sort of got the easy way out where just like you, I just listen to the teacher and knew enough to kind of get me through. But at the end, I never really knew why I was doing what I was doing. And I never really knew what the purpose was. You know, I mean, obviously, it was to find the area. But why am I finding the area of this thing? I don't know.
2: Right. And I feel pretty clear that had I not gone to the math camp and had the different experience, I wouldn't have gone on in mathematics. I'm pretty certain. of that. Not 100%. But that was the time when I was just, and I think it was the sense of being in charge of your own understanding, and essentially being asked to actually do the thinking work. And which isn't to say, I mean, they certainly told us how to do a lot of stuff, because there's a lot of really deep ideas that you just kind of need to spend some time in an art gallery seeing the great ideas before you make your own work sometimes. But we were getting the ideas, not just the answers. And then we were being asked to come up with our own arguments. And I don't know, I just thrived. In that context. Yeah, it was the first time I'd been so consistently challenged. And I think also the first time that it wasn't weird to be good at math. I think I'd always been felt a little out of place for being good at math. And suddenly I was in a place where that was just expected and not a big deal anymore.
1: Right. You were with your peers at that
2: point. Right. But what was interesting is I came back. And I think at that point, like summer after ninth grade, it was on my mind to think that if everyone could have that kind of experience in the way that was right for them that it could actually turn everyone onto math in a way. Like, yeah, I felt like I had had the experience that everyone deserved to have.
0: Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12 setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district
1: and grab a spot in our calendar now. And how can we make that happen for everybody? You know, like thinking
2: about those ideas. Exactly. And frankly, that's been my target since then. Like that's maybe the moment where I feel like, even though it took me another 20 years to actually articulate that and choose that as a career, (laughs) that, that kind of
1: was you know speaking of that I would like to know a little bit more about that path from say high school into your role now like what did that look like what is your role in education right now like where did that path go from there to here
2: yeah so I got done with high school and it was actually interesting because again I got accelerated I sort of used up the math that they had there in community college ended up not taking math for two years of high school and then I went to college, sort of jumped ahead in math again, and then with wrestling. But I ended up, I sort of turned around. By the time it's time to declare a major, math was the only thing i would taken enough of to be able to declare a major. And so I kept going in it. And yeah, I kept finding it really interesting, I think, even though it was really important to me to study other stuff and be kind of well-rounded. And I got a pretty classical liberal arts education in a lot of respects, but I was always doing math, and that is my main focus. And then I became a high school teacher. So I went to New York to St. Ann's School, and I was a high school teacher there for two years, from 2002 to 2004. Uh, though it's actually a quick K twelve school, so I had like ninth, tenth, eleventh, eighth graders, and also like a sixth grade class. And then my second year, I had a fourth grade class. Yeah, which kicks my butt <laughs> yeah. teaching fourth grade the first time. <laughs> oh I man, bet. that was really I challenging. Bet. But I did that for two years. I really enjoyed it. There were some great people I was teaching with there. I learned a lot. And I also had this moment where even as I was trying to do all the educational things I was doing, I think I also had this realization that I wanted to do more math myself and I wanted to be a student again which I never thought I'd want to do, but I did. And so I went to graduate school at the University of Washington. I was there for six years getting a PhD in pure mathematics. And I taught undergraduates, so I taught like the calculus sequence and differential equations and math for future elementary school teachers, math for future high school teachers, stuff like that. But I also got to go on a grant that put me to work in a school in Seattle, an elementary school. And I was getting to work very closely with second grade and fourth grade teachers at that school. And that was a fantastic program as part of the GK-12 grant, which was great. And I think by the time I was getting done with graduate school, it was clear to me that I didn't really want to do math research. That wasn't the right thing for me. But there was the same problem of the fact that so many people have had negative experiences with math. So many people have never really experienced what the subject has to offer. And that the best parts of it are hidden away. I think I was starting to recognize that as being my problem. And I started blogging under the name Math for Love. or under, I grabbed that blog URL and I just had these things to say. And then began this bootstrapping process of tutoring and then teaching small classes and then teaching like classes on Saturdays and after school and kind of running them on my own, doing them in conjunction with other places. And then actually starting to work with teachers and training teachers. And then there were sort of some larger things where as we were working more and more teachers, we were eventually tapped to write a curriculum for Seattle public schools that now is starting to travel and also starting to develop board games that are also their own kind of exciting story. And yeah, there's been this, I don't know, it's like you turn around and it's 2019. And actually it's like been eight years or nine, gosh, I graduated 2010. So it's been like really 10 years of beginning this process of trying to share a different vision of what mathematics is and really start thinking about how to teach it. And now I would say it's really about how to create systemic change and how the system really can put forward a different perspective on what math is and have the teachers involved with it, as well as the students involved, really feel like it's different than the privilege that I feel of getting to show people some of the best and most beautiful ideas in the world of humanity, like ever, and everybody gets to feel that excitement in the way they teach and, and and what the kids get to love.
0: Well, listening to your story, you know, I'm sitting here and clearly you are so passionate and I think you are most deserving of the URL math for love <laughs> because it's clear, it's clear that you definitely have a love. And one of the big pieces that jumps out at me from that story is, you know, going and working towards your PhD and teaching at the university level. We were actually on a podcast interview a couple episodes ago from this recording anyway with James Tanton who had similar experience of being teaching at the university level and then coming down and teaching into secondary and then doing a lot of work in K through six. And I'm hearing a lot of similarities through your story here where like to go from teaching university undergraduate courses and then hopping down in grades two to four and working with young children, and really being able to have that flexibility of thinking at two completely different ends of the spectrum is not only a challenge, but the learning that you must do, the learning you must have gained from that experience, I can only imagine would have been just pretty fascinating, I'm sure. Oh, yeah,
2: no question. Yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah, James, I love James's work too. And he's someone who I feel like yeah, plug for James Tim. Like definitely worth checking out if people haven't. He's someone who I feel like I consistently learn new mathematical ideas and this stuff where it's like, oh yeah, like what a great way to look at a multiplication table. Like, how did I not see that before? The mathematics can be really interesting at different levels, but I was mean, really drawn down to elementary in part because it felt like that's where the largest gains were to be made. And I think if you have a high schooler who has decided that math is not for them. It is so difficult to change their mind about that. It's like a major, major kind of mental overhaul. Teachers, in a way, are easier because there's a lot of elementary school teachers who have been hurt very badly by mathematics. It's really sad, but they know that they want to teach kids, and they're dedicated to making sure that kids have a better experience than they have. So I think there's an openness. There's an opportunity to really get in there. But I think that- Yeah, put you, that work in, right? Exactly. Exactly. If the students at a young level, that kind of K to 5, K to 6, and frankly, even younger, if that foundation for mathematics gets laid right, and if they feel like it means something to them, they understand the connections are clear, it makes sense, and they are building on that, I think that just makes all the difference in the world as the kids get up in the middle of high school. And my theory, I don't have data on this, but people talk about middle school is the time when a lot of students all out of mathematics, especially girls. I suspect that some amount of that comes from how the foundation is laid. At a younger age.
1: This conversation and you know these ideas you bring up, you know, they remind me of what you were talking about in your TED talk, which, you know, it's gotta be one of the most powerful math TED Talks I think I have ever seen. And that TED talk was about, you know, five principles of extraordinary math teaching. And you were speaking that one quote that rings true for me and my experience and thinking about the students I have. And when Kyle and I run around and do workshops and ask people their memorable math moments, a lot of them are negative. And you had a quote in your talk that uh, you were speaking mostly about mathematical literacy and people avoiding math in their lives. And I just love the quote that you said, when we're not comfortable with math, we don't question the authority of numbers. You know, I really resonated with that thinking. And you were talking about people being misled by statistics and just avoiding numbers at all costs. So uh, I I wonder yeah. if you can there's it. actually a
2: couple of great- what yeah. was that percentage
0: ninety two percent of yeah. people yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll butcher it, but I love that I, I still yeah. crack up every time I see that or I think <laughs> about that. Hey there math moment makers. Are you a dedicated listener? like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years?
2: Yeah, that was actually really interesting because I had that joke in the talk, but then when I actually gave it, people laughed before I killed (laughs) it. And it kind of surprised me. There's all these moments to mess up a talk like that.
1: I love that you were like, Uh, that was a joke, and everyone already knew.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's actually a great book on that, too, really. Uh, Charles Seifert has a book called Proofiness. I forget the subtitle exactly. It's like The Dark Arts of Mathematical Persuasion. But he really talks about how you just literally throw a number in and people will believe stuff. And there's all these ways he sort of discusses how just numbers and mathematics and the proofiness is a reference to Stephen Colbert's truthiness. You know, it's like the appearance of logical rigor and soundness. But if you're not, if you're afraid of it, you don't question it. And I think that's really something that keeps coming back around mathematics. Like there's a lot of reasons that mathematics is a powerful and wonderful and life-enriching subject, and one of them is is that it makes you stronger in your life it makes you more powerful and this is like when you play games and you analyze them using mathematics it sometimes can feel like cheating because you just have an advantage over everybody else like there's no professional poker player who would dare to take a seat at a table without knowing all of the probabilities of the games they are going to play there's actually a kid i know who sent his mom an article, uh, like, there's some friends, and it was an article about Monopoly, and, like, which are the most advantageous spots on the board. And he, like, ate up the article, invited his friends over to play Monopoly, (laughs) and just wiped the floor with them. And it's just, like, that's what math allows you to do, is just win stuff and take advantage of stuff, it just doesn't feel fair that not everybody gets the opportunity to have that. And, you know, Bob Moses has the book Radical Equations, where he's like, this is so vital as a matter of equality and social action that everybody learn algebra and be able to have this. It's not like some little side thing. It's something that actually prevents you from being cheated, allows you to cheat other people if you're unethical allows you to win, you know, it's just like the house always wins because they set the probabilities of the games. And so you need to know that before you sit down to play with
0: them. So interesting. You know, two things there, you mentioned Monopoly. And although I didn't read a book, I used to be obsessed with that game when I was a child and I loved it. I don't know what it was about it. I think a lot of it did have to do with sort of that math thinking and trying to make sense of like, why these properties are more expensive. You know, I loved it. And then poker was another one that, you know, there was the Texas Hold'em sort of craze back when I was starting university I remember so, that yeah, yeah, yeah me and my buddies would play and we did even some of that online stuff for a little while uh, but you know I read books on it and I was and made fascinated a million dollars. by Well, I wish that. I did win a tournament (laughs) once, which, uh, you know, a little feather in my cap, but I'll tell you, reading some of these uh, professional poker players and, you know, you see them on TV and they put this front on as though it's just like, they're just really good without thinking about it, or they're just reading the player. And at the end of the day, when you hear them actually explaining how they work with the odds and how they make all the calculations on the fly, it's, it's really, really fascinating. And it all comes back to this idea around mathematics. And those are the pieces, again, going back to your experience in grade nine, going to that math camp where we don't do a great job through your traditional curriculum and exposing students. Now, I'm not saying, you know, we want to get kids gambling, but <laughs> at least helping them understand how the world works around us. So I'm wondering, could we like go back to that TED talk a little bit? Because those five principles, I think it's really important. The thing I love about the podcast and bringing people on is we do sort sort of a mix of episode types. Sometimes we bring people on for what we call a math mentoring moment where we try to help teachers work through some sort of challenge they are experiencing. But the part I love about bringing on other interview guests like yourself is hearing someone who has gone through very high levels of mathematics and getting their perspective on how math should be taught. So there's, you know, a lot of credibility there. So I'm wondering, I know the first principle, you said, we have to start with a question. i do you mind elaborating on that? I hope we're not putting you on the spot uh, where you have to go back and look up the others. I'm sure you've got them ingrained in your mind.
2: I would wouldn't you? yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I have to give an aside about that talk. So that whole talk was based on an essay written by my partner at Math for Love, who's also my wife, Catherine Cook. Yeah, she wrote the original essay that that whole thing was based on. And then she was like, I think you should give a talk and she submitted me to give that talk. And yeah, so that I really need to give her a pretty serious hat tip on that. Wow.
0: Just, Does she give you the regular <laughs> grinds Like, you know, in the morning, like, hey, honey, that TED talk, <laughs> you know, it just hit this many million views or whatever it is. Remember who gave you that idea.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, you know, we're definitely uh, collaborators on things. But no, I think credit where credit's due. She's the creative director of Math for Love. And that's for a reason. She's like way more generative and in terms of just like the insightfulness. Yeah. But I get to be the face of the business. So I'm the one who's better known still right now. We'll see if that changes. Um, but right. yeah, but her, her original essay is actually still on our blog. So you can read her original version of it. We will and it's definitely actually, link like, to you know, it. Like for in sure. a different order. There's like, yeah, it's, it's kind of, cute. but yeah, starting with a question. So there's kind of this thing about like what. And this is something I obsess over is like this has to do with systemic change, too, because I'm really wary of change that requires you to like throw out everything you've done before and do a whole new program. Because I think when it comes to systems, you know, you have to say, well, if somebody only hears part of this message and it's garbled they only get 25% of this through, and then they sort of go back to what they were doing before? Will it actually help things? And starting with a question is one of those things that I just feel like it gets to the heart of what we're doing when we're doing mathematics is we are, there has to be some element of inquiry, investigation, exploration, something where we are provoked into thinking. And it's so common that Lesson plans or curriculum or textbooks are laid out in this way where it says, show students how to do this. And effectively, we give students answers before we have actually articulated a question. And an answer without a question is essentially, it has no place to live. It's just an isolated thing that and I think it just, most people just don't pay attention to it and then rolls off their back because there's no context for that. And the difference between that and starting with a question is even, and it's one of those things that I think, even if you do it for like 30 seconds and you just say, what would happen in this case? How do we, you know, solve for X or add fractions or add 10 to a number? Just something that is like, Whatever level is appropriate for students, if we can just let the question hang for a minute and students to actually have the experience of saying, huh, how do you do that? And often it's like, oh, I feel like I know how to do it. It should be easy. But actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know how to do this. Or it's not obvious. Even if that's the only change. And then teachers explain everything just the way they normally do. I felt like that would be... A positive move in many classes. Well,
0: it's funny because as a teacher I would always plan a lesson thinking like, if this lesson goes really well that means that at the end kids actually won't have any questions because I covered it all. And you know, you realize years later that, hey, wait a second, nobody was listening to anything I just said because there was no point to it for them. And they just, you know, the whole point was missed. So,
2: And actually I have to give another hat tip to my dad actually, who's a university professor or a college professor at the Evergreen State College. But he He has a book called Teaching With Your Mouth Shut, and I think there is, in his sense of pedagogy, there is an understanding that usually when you're talking, that's just not how people learn. People aren't really listening that much, and to figure out how to use your words to actually lead to people learning is quite tricky. And more often, you need to actually lure them into having an experience. That actually was what was so interesting about crafting that TED Talk, was having it not be something that was just me talking, but actually luring people into having the experience that I was trying to describe. And I did that with the problem I shared, where there's the numbers that each have colors, and the colors all represent something. And I essentially seduce people into allowing themselves to think about it a little bit, because they know that I'm going to tell them the answer. And then I don't tell them the answer. And suddenly they start to have the experience that I think is essentially the heart of the mathematical experience it has to do with frustration and wanting to know but not yet knowing. And you have to actually let people have a safe space to even allow themselves to want to know. When
0: you had quoted from your dad's book, we'll also we'll definitely link to it as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, Teaching With Your Mouth Shut, it made me immediately think of, I'm trying to think of the book title, but I think it was Dr. Tony Wagner's book on creating innovators or something like that. I'll definitely double check and put it in the show notes for those listening. But he also talks a lot about how... when. When you're speaking to group, and he doesn't really define what that number is, but I'm picturing like more than four five or six people, it's sort of like you have to sort of just hope that someone's listening. <laughs> and when you're constantly speaking to a class of, let's say, 20 or 30 students in front of you, again, it's like nobody out there thinks you're talking to them. Right. So what's the point anyway? So let's ask a question. Let's let the students do the talking and let's kind of listen to what they have to offer and then modify what we're going to do next based on what comes back to us
2: yeah so there's some things that jumped to mind like some things that i found in my and especially when you're working with young kids because that was so hard when i first started teaching that fourth grade class when i was teaching mostly high schoolers is the high schoolers i could just engage that i could go in i could improvise my lessons like not even have a clear plan but really just like talk about what might be interesting and then sort of set them going on problem. the fourth graders it was just totally different and as soon as you're talking to young kids, like the clock is ticking. <laughs> like they need to be doing something. They cannot listen to you for that long before they just have to do something else. And and it's great practice in a way. And I think some of the most innovative teachers I know are elementary school teachers or kindergarten teachers because they're just so good at getting the kids engaged in doing things and using kind of the natural, there's this phrase that we keep coming back to, rest, Love, which is play is the engine of learning. And that's so true for young kids. It's true for Adults as well is the interesting thing. Like you need to have a sort of playful, investigative, curious experience, but it's so obviously true for young kids. And I do have a tip for teachers when it comes to using games in the classroom. One thing I've noticed, which is key, is don't try to explain the rules in great detail. Very quickly explain what the rules are and then get playing and actually invite a student up to play a demonstration game. And the students will not listen to you explain the rules of the game, but they will be so interested in seeing a student play a game with a teacher. And that is riveting. And it's just sort of understanding what is actually going to, to grab the kids. And in really in my ideal classroom, and i got, there have been times when I've had enough time with kids to actually develop these kind of things. You actually have the students asking the questions. And then solving them, that they're actually taking control of the entire process. And that you're really there as a kind of mentor to, to say, oh, what makes an interesting question? How can we guide these things? As well as helping them to, to actually answer them as well.
1: You know, it brings up, you know, when we're talking about play and games in math class, like that's a great tip. And when I think about games in math class, I want to get your opinion on this. Like what games in math class are most beneficial? Like what makes a good game in your opinion? For example, like my kids brought home a game a couple weeks ago from their math class and it was a sheet of paper. And on the middle of the paper was drawn like a spinner, but you create your own spinner with a paper clip and a pencil. And on one side of the paper is a set of numbers. They're all even numbers. And on the other side of the paper, there's the same set and you take turns playing the game. And when it was your turn, you'd spin the spinner and it would land or you could roll a die uh, and it would land on a number. And then all you had to do was move a counter onto double that number. And then if you filled up your side first, you won. That was the game that my daughters brought home. And, you know, I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on what makes great games in math class? Because I think you've got some opinions on this.
2: Oh, I do. Yeah, I actually just step off. (laughs) We just thought you
0: might. We weren't sure, though.
2: (laughs) So I have skimmed down my list to three things that I feel like are really key. The first one is that there needs to be choice in the game. And that's exactly where the game that your daughter was playing Mm -hmm. fails, right? There's no choice. You spin a spinner, and then you do the thing that you have to do, and then you go on. And there are some games that have no choices to make. War comes to mind. But they tend to not hold our attention for very long. And more importantly, like essentially what we're doing is we're basically being like, this is basically a worksheet, but let's make yeah. it a game because you've got a exactly. spinner or a dice or something. But you're also missing a huge opportunity, which is when a kid has a choice to make or when anybody has a choice to make, now there's a deeper question, which is, did you make the right choice? Was there a better choice you could have made? And that's when you actually start developing strategic thinking and being able to have conversations around what makes that a good strategy or a bad strategy. So for me... With very few exceptions, choice is something I really look for in games. And I think that's just critical, both for student interest and for the depth. The second thing is, I like math. I mean, we're talking about math games here. That's what I'm talking about. I think math should be the central of the game, like the engine of the game. And I think this is something that it's so easy. The other problem of not having choice is very typical of textbook. Games not having math be central to the game or the engine of the game is very typical of online games or math apps and things like that, where you're flying your little airplane or driving your race car and then you run out of gas and you have to solve a math problem to get gas. And it's just like, well, that doesn't matter. Like that, you could have slapped anything. Could have been a spelling word. Like, it's not actually relevant to the situation. And I think...
0: Well, you think about productive disposition as well. It's like, what are you saying about mathematics in general? You're sort of saying like, we're only going to do math when you run out of gas or when you, you know, you made it this far. Now, in order to keep going, you need to suffer and do this math stuff, right? Which is just not right.
2: Do this thing you hate to do something else that's actually fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's almost counterproductive, you know, in the grand scheme of things, especially if we're trying to help students see math as something more than this endless list of skills to attain in order to move on to the next grade. And then
2: the third thing is, and this is for classroom games especially, it should just be simple to learn and quick to play. And that's just because you can't be spending like a half hour explaining really complicated rules. I used to play a lot of cribbage when I was a kid, and I love cribbage. I've never used it in the classroom though because there's all these weird rules. And so I just don't bother because there's a better, quicker game that I can do that is almost as good. Yahtzee, similar. I know people have used Yahtzee in the classroom. Feels like almost a little too much going on, but I love Pig, Shut the Box. You know, all of our tiny polka dot games were basically developed for this exact, to be like that quick and just get you right into the numbers. So those are my three. Choice math being the engine of the game, and simplicity. I think that's that's what you look for.
0: Well, you just referenced, uh, and thank you so much for sharing that. That's super helpful. I think people will be, it's really three pretty simple set of criteria, really, for people to be thinking about when they're kind of looking at some games or they go online and they're trying to find some useful games. They can kind of run them through this little filter and help them determine whether this is the game that they need for reaching that particular objective.
2: Totally. And actually, if I can make a plug, too, I've got a free lesson library on my website, mathforlove.com, and people are welcome to I feel like I highlight a lot of my favorite games there
1: awesome we'll definitely uh, put that in the show notes links for sure I'd like to go back
0: to uh, you mentioned tiny polka dot and I actually own two sets of that game because one was for home and then my wife who was a kindergarten teacher for the past two years she wanted a set to bring to school so we bought another set for her to bring and that's a really really cool game and my children who are four and 6 were still with my grade one my my daughter Talia, we're still using the game in many different ways. It's so versatile. Do you mind sort of sharing, like, where did that come from? Like, how did that come to be?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad, Kyle. That that's been it's really is one of the greatest things. It's like you make something, and then you know, people will send me photos or videos of their kids playing it, and it's just really exciting. That game grew out of actually grew out of the summer curriculum we designed for Seattle Public Schools for their summer staircase program it was an intervention curriculum and we had this idea very early that we were going to make it play based that if kids are going to be staying in and going to school in the summer it had to be the most fun thing ever like it couldn't be a punishment it had to be just like awesome and i think we were also big believers in the idea that when you get kids playing you can actually get into more rigor deeper thinking so we just needed a lot of games and a lot of the games we wanted to come up with and we're starting to come up with i think we kept saying like oh here's a really simple game you can just play this with a deck of cards just like take out the jacks queens and kings and aces are one even though it says a on it you know just like that's a one and you know we're doing this thing and like and then we kind of kept having this conversation like boy it'd be nice if there were a zero on the card like it'd be nice if that were in the deck And, you know, it would be great if, like, there's some different patterns of the dots. And we were kind of looking around and just didn't see anything out there. And at some point, we're like, wait a minute, why don't we just make these cards? We'll just make the thing that we want to be there. And we had been both collecting and creating games to use, like, just simple games to use with a card deck. And we were just like, we'll just mathematically enrich our own card deck and then put that to work. So, actually, the first time that was used was in that summer program. That was when we had prototypes going out and the teachers using it, got a great response from them and from the kids. And then we're like, okay, we've got this thing and we kickstarted it. And it's been really exciting to see how it's been received both for parents i think as a way for parents to do math with young kids which i think is sometimes a source of a lot of anxiety for people to just say like oh i can just play with my kids and here's a way to do it it's great and then i also i think in schools like for pre-k and kindergarten teachers and even first and second grade teachers that's pretty fun i think a lot of kindergarten teachers like see it and they're like I know exactly what to do with that. Like, that is.
0: It's so interesting because my experience, John and I were both high school teachers. I went into a consulting role from K to 12, and I've spent a lot of time from K to eight, in particular, K through three, K through five, really trying to dig in and, you know, sort of figure my way around. And
2: it's really different, isn't it? Oh yeah, my it's- gosh,
0: it's mind blowing, but it's so fascinating. Like, I don't know, you know, as much as I'm excited to get back into the secondary classroom, I am fascinated by elementary math just like you said there's so much that can be done there and when I started thinking about principles of counting and quantity and learning more about subitizing and just spatial reasoning and all the pieces there and then coming across tiny polka dot I was mind blown and I just love all of the different dot arrangements and configurations. And, you know, you've got 10 frames there. You've got even you hit on this idea of abstraction where some dots are bigger than others. And it's really, really impressive and even for a parent who buys this set or goes to your website and does the printable version, which is also very helpful for those who might be on a budget. You play with these cards and it's like, even if I don't have a complete understanding as to why those dots were placed the way they were or in the different configurations, my son or daughter is getting some benefit from playing those games. And you know we're building all the other things outside of math, just that family togetherness and just playing games like we used to do when we were children and kind of bringing everybody to the table. So thank you for that. I thought it was really awesome. And I
2: come from a game playing family too. And I just feel like it's such a great opportunity to like have time together as a family and also you just get to experience math as being this like joy for your family.
1: I just want to go back to when you talked about uh the game coming out of like a summer curriculum and I think that's great that you're working towards implementing summer curriculum stuff. We always hear about that kind of summer slide. I'm wondering if what are you guys working on now? Like do you guys have other kinds of curriculum? Like what are some resources our teachers are listening
2: can get their hands on that you might want to talk about? Oh sure. I mean, God, it feels like we always have like a lot of projects in the works. So we do have this curriculum we built. It's a summer slash supplemental curriculum. So it's not enough for a full year, but it's enough to give you like something to do once or twice a week for a year or something to run a summer program out of. We've got that from K through five, uh, available on our website. And I'm also going to be teaching a training on both how to use it and how to train other people to use it this March 5th and 6th, which I'm really excited about, actually. like So far, we've always led the trainings in terms of how to use it for uh, teachers. And I really would love to have other people be enabled to teach others how to do it. So I'm excited about that. I'm also going to be teaching a series of webinars through Christina to Build Math Minds website on using games, mathematical games in the classroom. There's one for pre-K to second grade, and there's one for third to fifth grade. That's end of February. That's front page of my website, mathforlove.com. You can see announcements from both those things. There's some other curricular things that I'm building. There's some fractions curriculum I'm doing. I'm actually doing some stuff from fifth through 10th grade with an Australian company called uh, Maths Pathway. That's been really interesting. A lot of like sort of interesting things in the works that way, So I haven't like sort of put it all together and put it out there yet. Oh, wow. That's exciting. Yeah. I think those are a lot of things. And then hopefully some more games coming out because we have two, but... Still more in the works. It just takes a long time to get them just right. So we've got like five in the pipeline, but we'll see how many actually get all the way through. It'll probably take like a year more before we get our next one out, but...
0: That's amazing. We will definitely include show notes for some of the summer curriculum pieces, as well as some of your training that you just mentioned as well. And, you know, I'm looking at the time here. We don't want to take up your entire evening. So I did want to talk about your second game, which is Prime Climb. But due to the time, what I'm going to recommend people do that are listening, if they haven't watched your TED Talk, hit two birds with one stone and check out the TED Talk. And when they are fascinated by a list of 20 digits or 20 numbers, I should Say with a very colorful look to them, they will have been introduced to the second game, which is Prime Climb. And I'll tell you, Dan, I've posted on Twitter a few times. I love using that same image of the numbers one through 20 from Prime Climb as a great way to help teachers understand the adaptive reasoning and strategic competence piece from the five proficiencies, the five mathematical proficiencies. We do a big activity around it, lots of mathematical discourse, and it is all, and the beautiful part too, if we go back to your TED Talk, I don't even start with a question. It's a notice and wonder, and they come up with so many different things and really just trying to model it in a way very similar to how you do in your TED Talk. So folks, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you definitely want to hit the show notes page where we will post a link to his TED Talk as well as to Prime Climb. It actually took me quite some time, like over, I want to say maybe a year or two before I made the connection that the image in that TED Talk was actually a board game. And it was like my mind exploded when <laughs> I saw it you know, come across my Twitter feed or something like that. So super cool. My kids and I use that prime climb to just do simple addition and subtraction so we kind of make up our own little rules and uh, my son who's even four he's using his fingers and sometimes we'll even use the ten frames from your tiny polka dot to the side if you know if he's adding nine and nine because the die is not your standard die so lots and lots of things you can do just even on the fly with your young children or your young students so very cool
1: so before we go we're gonna put you on the spot here we're wondering if you knew one quick game that you could give our teachers or our listeners that they could use in their class tomorrow? Maybe it hits all three of your criteria. I don't know if maybe it's two on the spot, but what would be one quick game that they could give it a shot?
2: Boy, there's so many great ones. Um, so yeah, do we you know we, we did not quit <laughs> you for that. Yeah, I know. That's, that's totally fine. So let me give two. One is pick, which is you need just a single die for that and you roll it, and you get to keep all the points you get. So you roll a five, now you have five points. You get to roll again, you get a four, now you have nine points. You roll again, you get a two, now you have 11 points. You can keep going as long as you want. But if you ever roll a one, you lose all your points. So you can keep rolling as long as you want, but you can also stop and bank your points for that turn. And once they're in the bank, they are safe. And then you pass the die to the next person and they go. So I usually play first person to 50 or first person to 100 wins, but it's just a beautiful balance. It's so simple. It does everything I talked about before. Like there's a choice, just one choice. When do you stop? When do you make your points? But everything hinges on it. Yeah. It's super simple. Math is the engine of the game. It's super just fun for kids and there's that one critical choice to make it's on my website and there's also some scaled up versions of it like odd pick out which is a multiplication version of it so that's one to try that i really like and the other one which we can play right now actually is nim have you ever
1: ah uh, nim yes
2: yeah so this is a game one of our to... personal
1: favorites oh yeah the last year during our uh, live workshops we start the workshop playing a version of nim so it's pretty awesome we blow a lot of people's minds with it. But uh, people at home probably don't know it. So why don't uh give us some of the rules?
2: NIM is just, there's a whole like family of games, but it's basically you have a pile or many piles of some things and you take things away from it according to some rules. So let's play the simplest kind of NIM, which is 1-2 NIM. Let's say we start with the number 10 and you can either take away one or two from that number and whoever says zero wins. So i say 10. You got this, John.
1: Okay. Uh, you said 10? Yeah. I can take one or two. Yeah. I'll take one. And we're at nine.
2: And you're at nine. Then I'll take two and I'll give you seven. Ooh,
1: I will take one and we will be at six. So I'll take one. We'll be at five. I will take two and we will be at three. The three. <laughs> uh-huh. And then I'll take one
2: and we'll be at two. And, th- and I you... will take
1: two and we'll be at zero.
2: And you win. And we'll be So, so there's the game and I can tell you played. It I had to, math, uh, nine, I had to do some uh, quick math started. in my head early on. I haven't played that
1: version. Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I,
2: like, I like how you changed it
0: I, I kind of blanked out when you said it i was like wait a second i'm like oh darn this is on the spot here uh what's it gonna uh, okay i think you're playing in got the I background no but that's a really but here's the cool thing dan i think we don't want you know and i'm guessing you're not going to tell people but just letting the listeners sort of tinker with that one play with their class and see if they can figure it out without looking it up and just playing around and then changing the rules right like that's the exactly, beauty you of it. a
2: different number yeah Track different numbers. In
0: fact, you I could count a, up. A, it's whatever works, right?
2: Super versatile. I actually have a uh Ted Ed puzzle. So if anyone wants to Google my Ted Ed puzzles, they're fun. But there's one that's actually based on this. And the same idea, except it's you can take away one, three, or four. Oh, I like that. And it totally throws everything off, which is yeah, there's something nice about
0: that. That's gonna hurt some brains, which is great. That's when you know it's good stuff.
1: Well, we want to thank you, Dan, for joining us today or tonight or whenever people are listening to this, but we know you're busy and we've got a lot of good takeaways from this conversation. I know that I can go back to play these games for sure. So I would just want to thank you again for joining us.
2: Absolutely. And this was such a fun conversation, you guys. So always happy to chat. Awesome uh, yeah. Look me up anytime.
0: Thanks so much, Dan. It's so great to have a chat with you and to hear all about the backstory. And we will definitely be staying on your Twitter feed and on your website to see what's new. And hopefully down the road, we can bring you back on to learn what uh, new projects you're working on.
1: All right. Thanks so much, you guys. Well. There you have it, an amazingly rich chat with Dan Finkel from mathforlove.com, Kyle. What was your big takeaway from this conversation?
0: Well, the biggest takeaway for me was a connection I made when reflecting on the tagline for Dan and math for love, and that's play is the engine of learning. What I really like about that statement is that it leaves things wide open. Although Dan is a huge advocate for using games to engage students and draw them into enjoying mathematical experiences, the tagline allows us to take that statement and use our own methods to define what play looks like to us. I see a connection between this statement and our curiosity path that we always talk about when we make math moments. There's so many different ways to engage learners, but the key is to ensuring that it's done in a playful, non-threatening, and interesting
1: way. So, how about you, John? What's your reflection look like? My biggest takeaway was when Dan was talking about how he would select games. And he said that the best games are or the best way to introduce games were games that had simple rules, or you didn't overexplain the rules to the game. And I equated that with not over explaining instructions when getting into an activity or task in my classroom. I just say them once and let students explore and think about what They can try immediately. I think this helps with how our students take ownership of problems that they're doing in the classroom. They not only learn not to rely on you to lay everything out for them. For example, I heard one time Fawn Wynn say, the more I talk, the less they learn. And it's so true in my class and so true when kids play games. Let them discover. Let them discover the winning strategy. Let's let them play. Awesome stuff, John. So how about you at home? What's your big takeaway from
0: this episode? Share it with a friend, a colleague, write it down, or even send us a message on social media at Make Math Moments on Twitter, Instagram, and
1: Facebook. In this episode, Dan referenced a handful of great reads. We've got a list of over 60 great reads that we call the ultimate list of math books, a downloadable guide. For example, my favorite from the list right now is The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay Steiner. It's been invaluable for me in my classroom and especially here on this podcast in our math mentoring moments. It's helped us hold off on advice giving a little longer and allowed us to listen. You can grab this digital reference guide at MakeMathMoments.com forward slash books. Again, that's MakeMathMoments.com forward slash books.
0: In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform by simply searching for us
1: or use these quick links. For iTunes, go to MakeMathMoments.com forward slash iTunes. For Google Play, go to MakeMathMoments.com forward slash play. For Spotify, go to makemathmoments.com
0: forward slash Spotify. And quick links will work for most other popular podcasting platforms as well. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes and tweeting us at Make Math Moments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 11. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash
1: episode 11. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group, Math Moment Makers, K-12. through 12. Don't miss our next episode. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent, principal, getting teacher buy in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And Plans only go so far. You can make you know, detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable, but that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, and accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, Math- the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training. Get your planning workbook um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook.